Hello, and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. This show is presented to you by Gaslowitz Frankel, a fiduciary law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Robert Port and Craig Frankel, and we're talking about what charitable advisors need to know in 2020, or said differently with 2020 hindsight, what should clients talk to their charitable advisors about? And now it's time to introduce our guests. We are pleased to have with us today Michael Van Sice and Catherine Baldwin-Hecker, both partners with the law firm of Arnell Golden Gregory LLP. Uh, so, Michael and Catherine, let's uh, get started by uh, asking each of you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourselves, your firm, and your practice areas. Catherine, you first. Sure. Well, thank you for having us. We're excited to be here. I've been with Arnold Golden for almost eight years now and focus exclusively on ultra-high net worth clients and dealing with all matters um, related to their wealth, um, particular business planning, charitable successions planning, and we've also been expanding a lot into international planning lately. We found that that's kind of a big area for um, a lot of our Atlanta clients. And in addition to practicing in Georgia, I'm also licensed in South Carolina, so I've been doing a lot of work there as well. And Michael? So I finished law school in 2006, lateraled to Arnold Golden in 2010. I have focused my practice. Uh, most of our clients are business owners. We also work with clients with intergenerational wealth, as Catherine said, have done a little bit more international estate planning. We also work with people in the sports and enter- entertainment area uh, and have an industry focus on that as well. So let's start kind of easy. So I, I heard Catherine say that your clients are ultra high net worth clients. And I heard, Michael, you say that a lot of your clients are business owners or intergenerational wealth. I want to talk about that because I find it fascinating. But before we get there, I'd like to talk a little bit about how the charitable deduction and, and giving to charity has changed since the new tax act. So I'm going to let either one of you answer the question, but the first question is going to be, what did the recent tax act do, good or bad, to giving to charities? So for, uh, for high income earners, maybe the, the change isn't isn't uh, affecting them, but the biggest change was the increase in the standard deduction to $24,000. So uh, that means if all of the itemized deductions, so the various things like your state and local taxes, your charitable deductions, um, home mortgage interest is the other big one. If the those things aggregated together don't uh, total more than $24,000, then you are, it's more advantageous to take the standard deduction. Um, so, in other words, your gift to charity didn't lower your tax bill, uh, and if you just kept that money, you would have had you would have uh, still had the same tax deduction. So, um, that's a pretty significant change for many people that don't have large mortgages, make large charitable gifts. Probably for high income earners, maybe not a uh, not a big change uh, if you were making significant charitable gifts anyway. But but that affected, I think, the number of uh, people that will itemize deductions is significantly lower. I don't remember the 
the actual statistic, but it's a it was a big change. It's a well, much, it's a much smaller. Well, so I actually looked that up. The yeah. statistic now is I don't know what it used to be, but eighty five percent of all taxpayers, what was the prediction, will now itemize. And I'm very curious to see what happens now that we finish the tax year. And accountants and people like you are now looking at tax returns for 2019. So, so one of the questions I have, and there's been some media reporting on this, is whether those changes affected people's generosity. So do you have any sense, given your practice areas, as to whether those tax changes have affected what people are giving to charities? Because we have folks in the, in the giving community, in the charitable community who express some concern that folks aren't incentivized, if you will. So what what's your take on that? So before I went to law school, I worked in the nonprofit fundraising arena. And I think even in, you know, that, that was that was 20 years ago. Um, and there were concerns then that changes to the tax law might affect how people give. Um, I think surveys that have been done have consistently showed that people, when people prioritize or say why they gave to a given charity, uh, tax benefits is like number 15 on the list. It's, it's people are giving to mission driven organizations because they value what those organizations do, not for the tax benefit. Oftentimes, is, when is that true for, for, for high wealth individuals, the same for what I would call the everyday giver? I think some of it depends on, you know, why they're giving. If it's a very high net worth person who, say, had a large liquidity event that particular year, they might make a much larger gift than they ordinarily would and would be very concerned about the tax benefits in that case. But if it's uh, somebody who's making their traditional gifts to, you know, pick your large Atlanta institution of your choice and they normally give, say, at like a $20,000 <coughs> level every year, they'll probably continue to do that and, and not, you know, be as concerned with the tax ramifications there. There is a survey out that the the majority of giving overwhelmingly in the United States is religious giving, mm-hmm. and that has not changed. Right. It's really the non-religious giving where we need to be looking. So, so one of the things we've been talking about, and you just alluded to this, Catherine, is the fact that, that at a certain level, folks who give meaningful amounts will probably continue to to get to do so and and by doing so they may meet the the deductibility limits how about those folks who are more if you will in the middle class and and one of the things i'd like you to to talk with uh talk about for our listeners is is what's called a donor advised fund and can you tell our listeners what that is and how that might uh, how that goes into the the topic we have today? Sure. So a donor advised fund is is a public charity. It's essentially there are many out there. Many of the money management firms have their own donor advised fund. Um, uh, both Catherine and I have have created donor advised funds. So you can um, uh, and well, I'm not. Uh, I couldn't be one of. I couldn't be a client of mine. I'm what, not. what Michael is saying is that he's 15 years old and Catherine's 11, and they're young enough not to have accumulated wealth, and they can still have donor advised funds. Exactly. So, um, the it's in terms of the deductibility. So, so what it is 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 uh, basically a fund or a, a pool of money that 
the donor can advise the charity where to distribute it. So the, the donor advised fund would give to other public charities um, at the direction of the donor, but it's the timing is controlled by the donor. So what people do, and, and in, especially following the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the notion uh, or the planning idea is that if you're if your giving is not going to cross, put you over the $24,000 standard deduction threshold, what you can do is you can bunch your gifts together. So if you were going to give $5,000 to your your church over the next uh, five years, maybe you would do a $25,000 gift in year one for the charitable deduction. You get a, a $25,000 deduc- deduction this year. And you direct your donor advice fund to give $5,000 from that donor advice fund to your church in year one and the same thing in the next four years. But in years two through five, you take the standard deduction and you don't actually take any money out of your bank account and give to charity in that year. But your church is still getting that same $5,000 contribution. It just happens to be coming from your donor advice fund instead of from your individual bank account right and what what i what i the way i look at that and i have one as well and i've had one for a while at the suggestion of my financial advisor i view that as almost this may not be the right word but in an endowment for middle class folks and the point is as you just said and i did this at the end of last year you pick a number you you literally donate it to the donor advised fund and that's in my understanding it's as if you donated it all that year, yes. but then the money is in your account, and you can use it subsequently to make charitable donations from that entity. Uh, I happen to use Schwab. I know Fidelity has one. A lot of organizations, charitable organizations, nonprofit organizations have created them. And I, I think it's it's one of the smartest things you can do. And then when you couple that uh, if you have the ability with uh, uh, appreciated stock, you you get a double whammy there. So, Catherine, maybe without getting into the weeds on that, if you can just explain to our viewers how they might do a donor-advised fund and uh, get some additional benefits from appreciated stock or property or, or whatever. Sure. Um, we often tell our clients that cash is basically the worst thing you can give to a charity because you don't really get any tax bang for your buck um, on that. I mean, of course, you get the deduction, but if you are gifting appreciated stock, you basically avoid having to recognize any gain on the appreciation. So you give the stock to the charity, and then the charity in turn can liquidate it, and it being a charity doesn't have to take into account the gain. So um Oftentimes, most of our clients, and I think this applies to anyone, whether they're high net worth or middle class, if you have, you know, highly appreciated stock that you've been sitting on and you want to make a, a charitable gift, that's usually kind of your best bet for transferring to avoid that. And, let's, and let's one of the, the things, excuse me, Craig, and, and another part of that, which I didn't realize until I started doing this is, and this may be true for all donor-advised funds, but the the ones through the brokerage firms, you can actually select investments. Mm-hmm. So in addition to making the charitable contribution in the year that it's done, if you're lucky, your uh, your donated money will will increase, and and you'll potentially get a bigger bang for your buck over time. Yes, 
Um, I, I did want to say one other thing that I think is kind of interesting about donor advised funds. Y'all may have seen the statistics, but I think at the end of 2017, it was an absurd new number of donor advised funds were created. When in anticipation of the Tax Act, I think the number of existing accounts, you know, I think it was either doubled or tripled. It was just a huge Isn't number of new funds. And so, you know, one interesting thing to look out for is whether the IRS is going to kind of start scrutinizing this. So um, as listeners may know, private foundations, which are what you know a lot of people, uh, wealthy individuals do for their giving, they have certain distribution requirements where you have to pay out basically 5% each year. There are no distribution requirements on donor-advised funds. So as you're saying, Robert, you can put money in and just park it. You don't actually have to pay it out to a charity. Um, of course, that's not the reason why most people are doing this. They're putting in money to donor advised funds so they can go ahead and pay it out. But one question that the IRS has started looking at is, are they going to put any um, distribution requirements on these since the size has gotten so big and so much money has gone into them? Let, let's, let, let's now move towards the concept of, of transfer taxes, estate and gift taxes. Everyone's kind of scared words. But before we get there, is there any advantage to those people who are at retirement age to donating IRAs or other types of retirement benefits rather than either stock or um, uh, appreciated stock or cash? So um, something that's not new with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, but that uh, comes from the the last round of of tax changes is the net investment income tax, um, which is a 3.8% tax on, uh, on passive income. So uh, that's pretty pretty technical, but what can happen is if you're over the age of now 72, uh, or if you'd already started your required minimum distributions, so you were over 70 and a half uh, before the end of last year. Um, and and let's, let's, let's take a step back. Let's just answer, why do you say 72 and a half? <laughs> um, so, so the... Uh, a law that was passed right at the end at the end of last year, beginning of this year, it was called the Secure Act, and it changed the age at which people are required to start taking distributions from their uh, from their retirement plan accounts. And those minimum distributions, if you don't take it, there's a fifty percent penalty. So essentially, you're you're forced to take those take that amount out and uh, generally speaking, it's going to be all ordinary income. So one of the options that people have with their retirement plan assets is to do what's called a direct charitable rollover. And you can have assets moved directly from your IRA to a charity. You do not get a charitable deduction, but the reason that you would do this is it doesn't come into your income. So um, what we were talking about before, you might be taking the standard deduction and you wouldn't benefit from a charitable deduction anyway. So if you uh, if you were to take it into income and then gift to charity, you might end up incurring more income tax because of the way the thresholds work uh, on, for example, the, the Medicare uh, or the net investment income tax. Uh, so So for many people, uh, it's it can be advantageous to have money transferred direct from your IRA to charity. 
So just just to follow up on that, uh, to close that loop, so one suggestion might be to have your required minimum distributions, your RMDs, instead of going to you, go to a charity you've designated? Right. There is a $100,000 cap, uh, but you can do any amount less than that. So, and it, and it does, the direct charitable rollover, one of the advantages of it is it does satisfy your required minimum distribution. And, and let's not minimize how important this is. If you don't need your distribution, and so you would otherwise give it to charity or do something else, and you've got up to $100,000 you can give, you're now saving, you're going to be likely in the 35% tax bracket federal, and you're likely, if you're in Georgia, going to be in the 6% or a little less. So in addition to the 3.8 you're talking about, you're going to save essentially 40 to 45 cents on the dollar. That's not a bad tax savings. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts, Craig Frankel and Robert Port from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. We are talking with Michael Van Sice and Catherine Baldwin-Hecker, both partners with the law firm of Arnell Golden Gregory, LLP, in Atlanta, Georgia. Our topic today is what charitable advisors need to know in 2020. So let's go to transfer taxes now. Tell us what the new rule is. Well, um, the estate tax has been in, in flux for a while, and just when we thought things had settled down, they changed things on us. So uh, every individual has currently a $10 million exemption adjusted for inflation, and this has doubled what it was um, prior to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. At that time, it was only $5 million. And our listeners may know that it was only you know, 15, 20 years ago that the exemption was it was as low as in the 600,000s and then before eventually moving up. So this has been kind of a slowly increasing uh, number over the years. What's so, the current one? So it started at 10. What's the current the one The current now? one is now $11.54 million for 2019. And, and for lay people, when you use, us lawyers use the word exemption, what does that mean to a lay person, someone who's worried about, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, the IRS is going to take my farm, my business, my estate, everything I've worked for? So, so what it means is every individual can have up to $11.54 million of exemption that they can transfer to whomever they want free of tax. The IRS only imposes a tax, a transfer tax on amounts above that. Now, that rate is pretty hefty. It's 40%. Um, that's not the highest the rate's been. Uh, it's also not the lowest. The rate's something that's kind of changed uh, with the tax laws over time. So let's just say you've got your your average Joe who dies with an estate of maybe $2 million. They're not subject to, to wealth transfer tax. That's It's not a problem. So this is the estate tax and the corresponding gift tax have become an issue for a very, very small subset of the population. Uh, do, you, do you happen to recall what the statistics are of the number of estates that that are subject to this? I don't recall, but it's it, to my mind, it's, it seems nominal. I think it's below 3% that are even required to file. A, less than 3% of decedents even have to file a return. And you have essentially three big things that cause your estate not to be subject to tax. One is the exemption that, that Catherine's mentioned. The other is you have an unlimited charitable deduction, so the amounts that you leave to charity. Uh, also, 
uh, are not subject to estate tax. And the third so you, big so one. So you could fix your problem by saying, I'm going to give to charity everything over whatever the deduction is. Correct. Yes. No matter how wealthy you are, you can pay zero tax very simply by by uh, designating your you know, a charity to receive the bulk of your estate. Uh, and the, the other big one is the marital deduction. So, so many decedents, uh, many people that die, uh, don't pay tax because they leave it to their U S citizen spouse, leave and, the, leave the property to their U S. And let's spouse. talk about that. So if you leave it to your U S citizen spouse, you don't pay a tax when the first spouse dies. When the second spouse dies, do they have subject to inflation, currently an $11.54 million deduction or a $23 million deduction? Well, there's a a nice uh, law called portability, which means if, in your example, the first spouse leaves everything to the second spouse, you get a marital deduction. The The second spouse can also port, that is to kind of take over the first spouse's exemption. And this is not wine. We're talking about no, something no, else. No, 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 not wine. Just kind of carrying it over, getting to keep it. And there are a number of rules and restrictions related to portability. Um, so it, it doesn't always work the best for planning purposes. But for, mo- for most people, um, you can assume that the second spouse will get to add the first spouse's exemption on top. So basically, you do have that doubled exemption that you're mentioning, Craig. So the good news is... If the tax laws don't change, you can give, if you're married, uh, up to $23 million subject to inflation away at death. The bad news, I think, is, is this uh, exemption amount permanent? It is not. It is scheduled to sunset on um, January 1st, 2026. And what does sunset mean? And sunset basically means that we'll go back to what the law was before the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So if you were to actually look at the code, it's it basically says that this doubled exemption only applies until January 1, 2026. So honestly, that's made planning you know, a little bit more challenging for people who are in the 10 to $20 million space, because right now they don't have a tax problem. And and if if it sunsets, what what is the number it goes back to? Well, it'll depend on the inflation adjustment, but I think most um, projections have been in the range of about $6.5 million per person. So, so basically what, halved. So what could we do? <laughs> right. So the uh, the the two ways to take advantage of the uh, higher exemptions are to either die, which isn't uh, uh, really a good a good planning option, um, or you can give assets away. So for really wealthy individuals, uh, the the planning idea right now is to sometime before the uh, exemptions go down and sunset to give away assets. Uh, to take advantage of the higher exemption. And let's be real clear on that. What you're saying, if I'm hearing you right, is if you give a gift now, let's say of $23 million or $11.54 million, and it sunsets and goes down, totally good. You still got the exemption. But if it sunsets, you can't give that much. Correct. Right. So if you gave $11 million on December 31st, 2025, assuming the law doesn't change before then, uh, that would be gift tax free whereas if you gave it the uh the next day you'd pay uh, a fairly significant what would that be 
several million dollar gift tax if you did it the following day. So, so mm-hmm. first thing to our listeners, you need to put in your calendar for after tax day sometime in 2026, I guess, for the 2000, I guess 2025, you need to be calling Catherine and Michael and whomever else you want to call and say, what is there that I could do to make sure things are good? And one is giving gifts. What else could we do? Well, um, going back to our topic about charitable planning, I, I think a lot of our clients we found do have charitable intentions. And when you kind of point out to them that doing charitable planning is basically a means of shifting what you would pay from the U.S. government to charities, people really like that idea. If you're saying this is what you'd be paying otherwise to the feds and you can send it to the charity of your choice, we have a lot of clients who find that appealing. And so we'll do some form of charitable planning, whether it be, um, you know, a, a large gift, a gift over the um, over the amount of the exemption, or just something to reduce the level of federal tax. Could you use, and I, I'll call it the wrong thing, but a catch-all that say something along the lines of, I think they're called powers of appointment, but I that's so far beyond my pay grade, but where you can say, I'm not sure what the exemption should be, so, because I can't predict Congress, and if you could, you're an amazing person, but... I'm going to say anything above. I'm going to figure out a way so that I never pay a tax by using some formula or approach or something. Is there a way to do that? Absolutely. Um, So for uh, certainly as long as I've been in practice, and I think even before that, uh, because exemptions have changed, you also don't know exactly what what your asset mix is going to be at death or what the values of your assets are going to be. So very common in estate planning, certainly for married individuals to use formulas that oftentimes are based on the uh, the federal estate tax exemption. One thing that we've been talking to clients uh, and, and uh, in our speaking engagements have talked about a lot is with the, the changes in exemptions, if you had formulas in your will, uh, the even if your wealth didn't change what happens under your document may have changed significantly so for example i have a client uh, uh it's the woman uh created her will not that long ago i think her will was done in 2012 and she had a formula provision in her will and basically uh to simplify it her will said i give a fixed amount to my grandchildren I give as much as I can give free from the generation skipping transfer tax, which we haven't uh, uh, talked about today, but is another tax that you have to think about. So she said, I give as much as I can give free from generation skipping transfer tax to a, a trust that was originally created under her husband's will. And then everything else goes to my children. So when she did the will, the amount that was going to go to that, uh, to that trust was around a million dollars. Well, of course, fast forward, exemptions go to $10 million, and now the amount that would pass to that trust is about $7 million. And zero to the kids. Right, zero to the kids. So what ended up happening uh, is uh, her estate was not large enough to have any go to the kids. So, it's, so you're right, Craig, zero went to the kids. And oh, could you just say that again? I'd like to record that for my wife. <laughs> Your, your wife or your kids. <laughs> so so uh, w- th- this is another planning tip. When, so when you go back and talk to Michael and Catherine in 2025 or whenever, and this is an area that Gaslitz Frankel is seeing a lot of issues on. 
failure to fix old tax forms is going to result in either unintended consequences or in lawsuits. So one way to do it is to revisit every now and then. And we recommend our clients do that. We actually reach out to them every couple of years just as a reminder of let's review your documents. It's not that we have to change anything, but let's make sure it still comports with your wishes. And especially in light of the doubled exemptions, we've been trying to uh, push clients to revisit just to make sure that everything still works the way they want it to. The other thing that I wanted to mention, of course, is that, uh, as you said, there's sort of three three buckets you get to choose from for where property goes. It can go to your family, it can go to the to the taxing authorities, or it can go to charity. And and what do you want to have happen? And many people, I think, have used the exemption levels as a proxy for how much to leave to their families. But now that the exemptions are so high, uh, people maybe don't want their kids to get as much as they would get if you take. $11 million and divide it by the number of children that they have. So we're seeing lots of people using a different, they're thinking more about how much they want to give to their kids and not letting the exemption amounts drive that. They're thinking more uh, intentionally about what's what's the right amount for my kids to get. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of a quote, I think attributable to Warren Buffett, where he says something like, I want to leave my kids enough so they will do something but not so much that they will do nothing mm-hmm. and and the way that you've described the tax code currently might actually in my view help push people in that direction because they've got if you will a certain range that they can leave with without tax consequences and they can give away additional money again without tax consequences and maybe meet both their their families' needs, and their their charitable desires. I want to go back to the gifting part. So you talked about you could gift and use up your exemption. Is there other income tax benefits or other benefits to gifting today versus waiting and gifting or making a charitable contribution at death? So I think the the main uh, play there is getting appreciated assets out of your estate or particularly assets that are likely to appreciate. So if I make a gift of, say, $10 million now, what happens mechanically is I file a gift tax return with the IRS, and it says I made a gift of $10 million, and it uses my exemption. If by the time I die that $10 million has grown to, say, fifteen. I'm not going to pay any tax on that excess appreciation. You know, if I've given it to my kids, they get that extra $5 million basically transfer tax-free. If, however, I held on to that $10 million in my own my own name and it grew to fifteen, I'm going to pay transfer tax on that excess appreciation. So that's that's another reason why lifetime gifting, especially for very wealthy clients, is very advantageous. So you can save on the ultimate estate tax just by thinking about this in advance. Are there times in your life, for example, in the sale of a business, when the timing and how you figure out or when you should start thinking about gifting, is there a certain time in, in, in a person's life that this is a good time to do it? So a time that, uh, that we interface with clients is in advance of the sale of a business. Um, business owners really have the, uh, the perfect asset to uh, to, to give away in a in a tax advantaged way because the if you sell the business say you sell the business for all cash so you you have a business that's worth a hundred million dollars and um, or that's what it's going to sell for if you wait until the sale happens 
you have $100 million cash, it's pretty clear what that is worth. If instead you give away a, a fractional interest in the business, the, the value of, of that uh, minority interest in an operating business where you don't know uh, whether you're going to get distributions or not will be worth significantly less than the percentage of $100 million that it might represent uh, on ultimate sale. So if you think that you may be selling in the future, one of the planning tips is to give away minority interests in your closely held business over time. That There's uh, more complicated ways to do that where you don't actually use exemption uh, that we employ for clients uh, fairly regularly. Um, but that's, that's a, so in advance of the sale is definitely the best time to think about giving away property because it's just much more advantageous to give away a discounted asset in the form of, of uh, closely held business interest than to give cash after the fact. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts, Craig Frankel and Robert Port from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gaslewitz Frankel. We are talking today with Michael Van Seiss and Catherine Baldwin-Hecker, both partners with the Atlanta law firm of Arnell Golden Gregory, LLP. Our topic today is what charitable advisors need to know in 2020. So we were talking about giving gifts that might help us avoid a transfer tax. If you give a gift today, is there also an income tax advantage? So... uh really no get no income tax advantage well sorry uh i guess that's a good question depends on how you do it and who you're giving it to so that's the lawyerly answer (laughs) it depends it depends if you're giving it to charity versus your kid correct right so if you give the property to your child uh and outright so your child owns it and then the business is sold the child is going to recognize whatever income tax consequence there is there so uh from a from an income tax standpoint if you want to if you do want to give to charity one of the things that you can use sort of going back to our discussion about donor advised funds you can give closely held business interest to a donor advised fund in advance of the sale it's uh there's a a number of things that you need to think about you don't want to do it too close to the sale because if you do the irs might argue that it that you still recognize the gain and that you ultimately just gave cash and you're paying the income tax which defeats the tax advantage so you want to do it in advance of the sale but but it's best of course if you have some uh some certainty that the sale will in fact go through because donor advised funds and charities don't really want to have interest in operating businesses so it's a little bit of a delicate balance in terms of timing and it's important to think about what you're giving to the charity most people don't want to have a charity being able to vote uh, or make decisions about the business so it it, it takes some planning it's not something you want to do right at the last minute Uh, back to income tax uh, advantages or, or planning one thing that we often will do with clients is use what's called a grantor trust and in that situation the trust uh, is disregarded effectively for income tax purposes, so the donor is liable for the income tax. That, of course, at first blush, sounds like a really bad thing. You're 
uh, you're giving away assets, but you're retaining a liability associated with them. But from a wealth transfer perspective, it's very advantageous. If you could pay the income tax liability for your children, that would be a really good thing. You'd be able to benefit them. But if you, you know, if they send you their, uh, their 1040 and it shows a number and you, you pay their income tax, that's a gift in the grantor trust context because, uh, and there's very clear authority on this, because it is your liability when you pay it, essentially you're making a tax-free gift. So uh, so for very wealthy families, business owners, the a really good play is to transfer uh, assets to a grantor trust in some tax-advantaged way. Then if there's a sale, you actually pay the the capital gain on that, and that's essentially a, a tax-free benefit to the trust or, or for your kids. So compared against giving it directly to your kid and your kid pays the tax, if you can give it to a trust that benefits the child and you pay the tax, your child is getting more wealth with less gift tax costs. Can you give to it like a charitable type of trust that also gives to your kids in some ways? Um, so there are a variety of what are called split interest trusts. Um, and those have kind of two different terms. There's a current term and then a remainder term, and you can structure it with individuals either kind of at the beginning or at the end in, in charities. So for example, you can do what's called a charitable lead trust, where a charity receives the right either to an annuity or a percentage of the trust assets for a period of years, um, can't be more than 20, and then at the end of that term, the individuals you've named will receive the uh, remaining assets. And this can also be advantageous from um, a transfer tax perspective. So due to the way, there, there are many uh, IRS rules on how you actually calculate the gift, but if, for example, you do a charitable lead trust, you can structure it such that you're not making a taxable gift, but if there's any money left at the end of the charity's term, it will go to your designated beneficiaries. And, and let me just highlight something that I don't understand, but y'all can explain what the interest rates are at the time kind of tell you what kind of trust you should use? Exactly. So there are a number of interest rates that the IRS um, issues every month that apply to certain planning techniques. And one of those is called the 75-20 rate. And that's basically a a hurdle rate for for some of these um, planning techniques. And currently for January, it's only 2%. So when you're in a low interest rate environment like we are now, certain planning techniques like a charitable lead trust are very advantageous um, due to the, the way the mechanics of the calculations. Um, other techniques such as charitable remainder trust, which are basically the opposite of a charitable lead trust where you have an individual receive um, the income for a certain number of years and then a charity, those are much harder to do tax efficiently in low interest rate environments. Those work better when the seventy five twenty rate is higher. So and, and without getting into the weeds too much, can you, can you explain to our listeners why it is that the interest rates make a difference? Is it because it's treated like a discount rate, how long the funds may last if they're paid out over time, or is there a different rationale for that calculation? That that's basically it. Is uh, there's a, there's kind of an assumed rate of return in these, and that's that's what the seventy five twenty rate is. Um, so depending on whether, for example, if you put assets in and they appreciate above that assumed rate of return, uh, that can affect the calculation. So what I'm hearing is 
um, when you say don't get into the weeds, what I really heard you say was when you have a business event where you've sold a business or you have the opportunity to give to charity, and, and I do want to remind our listeners that charitable deductions are always unlimited, so you can use them in any fashion you want and, and, and help minimize taxes. What you're really saying is go see and talk to somebody like Michael and Catherine to understand how to do it and do it early and do it often like voting. So with that, I would like to ask each of you, tell me uh, one of your client success stories since the Tax Act changed, where because they, a client came to you early and often, you could go home and say, wow, did I help that client? Give me a good success story. Let's start with Michael. Um, so with increased exemptions, uh, one thing that we haven't talked about uh, that is is important in estate planning is is the basis adjustment that you get at death. So um, oftentimes it's called the basis step up, although that's not... When you say basis, it means the amount you're going to be taxed on above? Correct. So the example that we usually give is you go out and buy Coca-Cola stock or or some other stock, you pay $100, it appreciates to $200. If you sell it, you're going to pay, uh, on that example, capital gain on that $100 spread. If instead you've bought the Coke stock for 100, it appreciates to 200, you leave it to your child and the very next day your child sells it uh, for $200 or you know wherever it was at the date of death, there's no capital gain. So that can be very advantageous. So the the situation that that I uh, was able to help a client, so a very wealthy family that we work with, their mother uh, was was quite old and and was you know pretty near to death she had a trust that her uh, that was created by her husband that was not going to be includable in her estate uh, that was very good planning when her husband died I, I don't remember how long ago it was but it was good planning then but now because exemptions had increased so much uh, she was not going to be subject to estate tax. So if we left the money in the trust, it wasn't going to pay estate tax, but it also wasn't going to get the basis step up. If we could somehow get the assets out of the trust and into mom's name, then at her death, she, because of the higher exemptions now, was not going to be subject to estate tax, but we were going to get a basis step up. So um, uh, several months before her death, we the trustee distributed those assets out to mom and at mom's death they got a basis step up which ended up saving the family probably several hundred thousand dollars in income taxes whereas if we'd done nothing uh they wouldn't you know and there was no no estate tax in that situation so we were able to save the the family a pretty significant uh income tax with uh with that planning which was very simple was not a costly endeavor to uh, distribute the assets, but but was very advantageous for the family. But they had to ask you, Catherine. Tell mm-hmm. us your success story. Yeah. Um, I worked with a client last year who is a closely held business owner and did the grantor trust planning that Michael was referencing earlier. So this is a, a structure that I won't get into the weeds on, but it's called a sale to an intentionally defective grantor trust. And so only a lawyer would say an intentionally defective trust is a good thing. They're great. They're great. They work so well. Um, so this client had a business 
and the client knew that a liquidity event was coming down the pike at some point and basically sold uh, non-voting shares in the business to Grainer Trust for the benefit of the client's children. And um, we did this in advance of the liquidation, so we were able to have the business be discounted for valuation purposes. And so when the business ultimately sold to a third party, the trust that owned shares in the business got a very nice um, amount of cash, and the client was ultimately able to transfer, I think, about $10 million uh, kind of tax-free to his children through the structure. So the client was very happy. Good for you. As we're reaching the end of our show, we'd like each of you to tell our listeners how they might best be able to reach you so they can benefit individually from the uh, great advice and knowledge you have. So, um, Catherine, why don't you uh, tell our listeners contact information, website, whatever else uh, someone not, might need to know to reach you? Sure. We can both be found on Arnold Golden Gregory's website, which is www.agg.com. I can also be reached at 404-873-8530 or by email. I do have the unusual spelling of Catherine, which is K-A-T-H-R-Y-N dot Hecker, H-E-C-K-E-R at agg.com. And Michael? And my number is 404-873-8790. My name is a little tricky as well. Michael's the normal spelling, M-I-C-H-A-E-L dot v-a-n-c-i-s-e at a-g-g dot com i want to thank everyone today for listening to wealth matters where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth for more information about gaslowitz frankel much easier to spell please go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com and remember to follow us on twitter at a state dispute and use our show's hashtag wealth matters Our guests today were Michael Van Seis and Catherine Baldwin-Hecker, both partners with the law firm of Arnold Golden Gregory. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 a.m. here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. (music) 